Good morning once again. Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 37, please. Genesis chapter 37. The title of the message this morning is God's plan always supersedes man's plan. God's plan always supersedes man's plan. Through the summer, we're going to be looking at the life of Joseph a little bit and taking some principles from the life of Joseph. It's nice for us occasionally to go back to Old Testament characters, to look look at them and to examine them and to consider the way that God worked in their life, the way that God called them and spoke to them, and the way they responded to him as well in their struggles and in their joys. And Joseph is an excellent one to go back and look at because he definitely did not walk an easy life, and yet it was clear that God was in control. God was accomplishing his purpose and plan regardless of man. So this morning, God's plan always supersedes man's. Last week, we looked at the first 11 verses and saw the hatred that his brothers had for him. This morning, we're going to read from verse 12 through the end of the chapter in verse 36. Before we do, let's go once again to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that from cover to cover, it is inspired of God. It is breathed of you, and it is powerful for rebuking us and correcting us and directing us, and it discerns even between the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Lord, this morning we submit to your word. We submit to your Holy Spirit. We ask that you, Holy Spirit, would accomplish your purpose by your word in us this morning. I ask that you would give me wisdom, give me grace in presenting it. I ask that it would stick in our minds, that this would not just be something that we, we, uh, we put up with for 15, 20 minutes here, but that it would truly resonate with us and that it would give us something to carry throughout the week. We would be challenged to go back to it and to consider it and to see you and to see you in control and sovereign overall. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God's plan. It always supersedes man. Have you ever noticed that? And I'll be asking a couple things today. My, my questions are generally rhetorical unless I specify otherwise. Have you noticed in your life that God's plan supersedes your plan? Have you noticed in good things, even good plans, that God's plan supersedes your plan? Have you noticed in bad situations or things that you think might be bad situations that God's plan supersedes your plan? We see here in Genesis chapter 37 that God is directing through unpleasant situations. Genesis chapter 37, starting in verse 12. Then his brothers, that is Joseph's brothers, went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said to him, Here I am. Then he said to him, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks, and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron, and he went to Shechem. Now a certain man found him, and There he was wandering in the field, and the man asked him, saying, What are you seeking? So he said, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, They have departed from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, Look, this dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say, Some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, 
that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. Then they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty and there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh, and on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hands be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. Then Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. Then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes, and he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father, and said, We have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted, and he said, For I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. May God bless to us the reading of his word this morning. In looking at the life of Joseph here this morning, we see several things about Joseph, and we see the greatest thing that God is in control. The first thing that we see about Joseph, and it also relates to us, is that responsibility has been delegated. Now, as you look through and read through the life of Joseph, there are comparisons between him and Christ, but there's also comparisons between Joseph and Christians today, modern believers. So, you could see the comparison between Joseph here and Jesus Christ and the fact that Jesus was sent into the world, was rejected by his own, and was killed by his own. So he was despised and rejected. You could also see the comparisons between Joseph and modern-day believers, Christians today. We should be at odds with the world, likely to be rejected by the world. But the first thing that we see, if we're looking at comparison between Joseph and ourselves, and that's what we're doing is we're taking Old Testament principles and we're applying them to ourselves. Okay? Just the principles. And that is that responsibility has been delegated. Responsibility was delegated to Joseph. Joseph was sent to check on his brothers in Shechem. And he was instructed to bring back word to his father. He was sent out into the world, in a sense, if you want to look at an analogy between him and us. But he was sent to his brothers in Shechem. And why was he sent to Shechem? Well, Shechem was a dangerous place. And if you read back in the history of Jacob and of his sons, they had already had issues in Shechem. Shechem was a dangerous place. It had actually been taken by Jacob's sons by violent conquest and not by wholly proper motive or practice either. In chapter 34, Jacob's son had killed Shechem, the prince of the country, and that may have been justified, but then he also, they also went and killed his father. And it says actually that they killed every single man of the city. And then they went and they plundered all of the goods of the city and they took the wives and the children as slaves. So initially it might have been justified, but the sons of Jacob 
went overboard. And this is back in Shechem. This was the prince of Shechem that they killed and his father and all those around him. They were seeking justice, but then they went overboard beyond killing the perpetrator to killing every male and plundering everything that was in the city. So much so that Jacob says in chapter 34, verse 30, that they, the surrounding nations, he was afraid that they would gather together against me and kill me. So Shechem was not a, a safe place necessarily for the sons of Jacob. They had already taken it by conquest, but all of the nations around despised them because of the atrocity that they had committed. And so they are tending their flock there, and it's uncertain. And so Jacob sends Joseph, go and check on them. Find out if all is well with them, if all was well with the sheep, and come back and report to me. And we see another danger for Joseph here, and that is that his brothers already hated him. In chapter 37, verse 11, or 1 to 11, it says, First in verse 4, that they hated him. Then it says in verse 5 that they hated him even more. Then it says in verse 8 that they hated him even more. And then it says in verse 11 that they envied him. That was in regards to his dreams. So Joseph is sent to his brothers into a dangerous situation where it's dangerous as in the nations around, but also it's dangerous simply because his brothers were there and they despised him. And he was sent to inquire or to determine if it was well with them. So we see responsibility. We looked a little bit at that last week, that there was responsibility placed upon Joseph. We see that again. There is responsibility that has been designated to Joseph. He was to inquire and to determine if it is well. And there's an interesting phrase here that we don't catch in the English language, and it's interesting because it ties into what we looked at last week. Joseph was to see if they were at peace. When it says to see if, they were, if it was well with them, it literally means to see if they were at peace. The Hebrew word would be see if, if they have shalom, which is interesting because if you remember, we mentioned that word last week when he we said, what was it the brothers couldn't even say? The brothers could not speak peaceably. They hated him so much that they could not even speak shalom peaceably with Joseph. So Joseph here was being sent to those who could not extend peace, shalom to him, to find out if they were at peace, shalom, if it was well with them. They hated him, could not speak peaceably, couldn't even say shalom to him. And he goes to see those who couldn't say shalom, whether they have shalom. That, I think, is a clear description of us in the world today, isn't it? Joseph was to go to those who couldn't speak peaceably with him and see if they knew peace. Apt descriptions. Go out to those who are not at peace with you, those who hate you, and inquire about their eternal peace. That is what we are called to do. We are to go and to present the prince of peace. We are to go and to speak a message of peace. Yes, it also is a message which contains the wrath of God because they don't need to or feel the desire to get to know the peace of God until they've come to know or understand that they are under the wrath of God because of their sin. But we are bearers of peace to a world that is not at peace with God and is not at peace with us. We are called to go into the world and to preach the gospel to every created being. We are called to go out as sheep among wolves, dangerous. Responsibility has been given. And we see responsibility designated or delegated to Joseph we also see it delegated to us.
What has God called you to? A rhetorical question once again. In the world around you, what has God called you to? Among your friends and family, what has God called you to? At your workplace, what has God called you to? At your school or wherever it is that you go, what has God called you to? He has delegated responsibility. He has placed a responsibility upon you to go into the world that does not want to hear of him, that is truly at war with him, and yet to bring the message that Jesus Christ has come, that good news is available in Christ. He has come to bring peace, good tidings of great joy to all mankind. He has come to bring a tiding of peace. And we are to go and to bring a tiding of peace, that it is possible to have peace with God. Responsibility had been delegated to Joseph, and responsibility is delegated to us. That's the first thing that I want you to see. The second thing that I want you to see is that opposition is to be expected. Joseph runs into opposition in fulfilling his delegated responsibility. Hopefully, that is not the type of opposition we run into. It says in verse 18, When they saw him afar off, even before he came near, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, verse 19, Look, the dreamer is coming. Verse 20, Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. We shall see what will become of his dreams. That reveals a little bit of their motive there. Not just were they angry with him, not only did they hate them, but they wanted to put an end to this possibility even that they would have to bow down to him. Remember in both the dreams that he had had, it was them and in the second dream, the father and mother bowing down to him as Lord over them. And they wanted to put an end to this to make sure that there was no possibility we will put an end to his dream. Joseph faced incredible opposition. Sometimes we face opposition. Not all the time, but sometimes we do. Hopefully it's not the opposition that wants to kill us in the same way as they wanted to kill him. Sometimes in the midst of that opposition, we think we find an ally. And sometimes we do have allies. We should have allies in the church. (laughs) Joseph's ally here wasn't too great. It was Reuben. Reuben? Yes, in verse 21. Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness. Sometimes we may find a weak ally. Reuben intended to deliver him, it tells us that there. But the brothers didn't know that. And I wonder what Joseph's perspective was. Joseph wouldn't have known that either. Because if Joseph knew it, then the brothers would have known it, because it would have went around, right? It would have been shared. So he had an ally, maybe a weak ally, but it didn't really appear at that time because the other option for Joseph was, okay, they're not going to kill me now. They're going to leave me in this pit to starve to death. So when he is thrown in, and even when Reuben steps in and says, don't kill him, there's this appearance that this is more negative than it is a positive. And sometimes that is the result of, of an ungodly ally as well. We need to be allied with those in the church, but not allied with those outside who, who do not desire what is truth, who are not pursuing what is right or is righteousness. And it's interesting because here, Reuben had a plan. And the brothers didn't know about it. And so the brothers take what they think is Reuben's plan and they actually make it worse because the brothers were content to starve Joseph to death. They were content to do that. All right, 
You're right, we don't have to shed his blood. It won't be on our hands. We'll just let nature kill him. You can see the evil that is within them because after they have plotted and after they have thrown him into the pit, verse 24 says, then they took him and cast him into a pit and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And then the very next line, and they sat down to eat a meal. It is not always that we will run into that level of malevolence in the world around us, but where they plot to kill, and that is the case here, rather than shed his blood themselves, they plot to destroy him by allowing him to starve to death there. And they're so content in that, so satisfied in that, so untouched by it, without guilt, that as soon as they have done this, they can sit down and have a meal. Remorseless, hardened, cruel, you would almost say psychopathic. Like that isn't normal reasoning of a human mind, we wouldn't think. This is the opposition that Joseph faces as he fulfills the responsibility that has been delegated to him. Do we face opposition? Do we fulfill the responsibility that's been delegated to us? Because if we're fulfilling the responsibility that's been delegated to us to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every created being, then we should face opposition. If they do not know the grace of God, that is those that we go to, do not know the grace of God, why would we expect to be treated graciously by them. We are to be bearers of peace to those who do not know the peace of God as of yet. We are to say and to speak of God to those who, whether deliberately or inadvertently at this point or unconsciously or consciously, are rejecting, are opposed to, are in rebellion against God. And so we cannot expect to receive grace from them as we present the grace of God to them we should expect opposition. Four times in the gospel, Jesus is quoted saying, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Four times he's quoted. In John chapter 15, verse 18 and 19, Jesus says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world will love its own. Yet because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. As Joseph, we are to expect and we will experience opposition. If the world accepts you and thinks highly of you, perhaps it is because your light isn't penetrating their darkness or your salt is not stinging as it purifies, as it penetrates into the sin-filled world in which we live. Our responsibility has been delegated Opposition is to be expected. It is not a popular message among even evangelical Christianity today. We are to expect opposition. If we're not experiencing some form of opposition, it's probably because we're not speaking at all. Because how can you speak the name of Jesus Christ to those who oppose him and not be opposed yourself? Our responsibility has been delegated as clear. It's been presented. Opposition is to be expected, but praise God. We see in verse 25 to 36 that God is in the details, and he is in control of them. God is in the details. I realize you're perhaps more familiar with the saying, the devil is in the details. 
That means watch out for those small unseen details. They want to, or they will complicate something that looks relatively simple. That's kind of what that expression means. But the phrase, the devil is in the details, actually derives from an earlier phrase. It actually comes from the earlier phrase, God is in the details. The phrase put the same thought, that is, pay attention to small, seemingly insignificant details, in a positive perspective. God is the God of all of those details. And so whatever we do, we should do carefully and thoroughly to please God, even in the smallest details of life. So the next time somebody tells you the devil's in the details, you tell them God's in the details. (laughs) And God's got control of the details. God is in control. You can see how far our culture has shifted just in the changing of phraseology. That it used to be God is in the details, and now it is the devil is in the details. Nonetheless, God is in the details. The small, seemingly circumstantial, unimportant details, God is in them and is directing through them. We see here some of these circumstances that there is no way it would have happened on its own without God superintending. Verse 21, even that Reuben would keep Joseph alive, even with false or misleading intentions, which he did have, and they would have assumed their intentions, which were to starve him to death, and yet God is superintending. God is stepping in in a detail, even out of a false motive, even out of him maybe trying to cover something up or them having worse motives, God is superintending. We see in verse 24, they cast him into an empty pit. How many empty pits would there have been? Have you ever thought about that detail? A dried up well? Maybe. That is what's most likely. You're out in shepherding country. You have sheep. You don't leave empty pits lying around just for the sake of having an empty pit around. And to have it empty, no water in it. I could understand if it was deep and there was a little bit of the water at the bottom, but it's obviously deep enough that they could throw him into and he can't climb out of. And so they would have been inclined, I would think, if, they're, if they have sheep in this area, of either filling it in or digging it so you got water. And yet here, they come across an empty, dry pit. And they cast him into it. The moment that they sit down, this is another interesting detail that you can see God in and God planning and superintending. In verse 25, the moment that they sit down, a caravan comes into sight. Now, I don't know how many caravans would have been traveling through there, and I haven't done an extensive research of the geography. It was probably on a a trading path, I'm assuming, of some kind, but there's no mention of that before. But the moment, it says they sit down, they... A trading caravan comes along. Traders. And traders who are willing to trade in slaves as well. In verse 26, you see God superintending in the mind of Judah. Judah gets the bright idea to sell Joseph as a slave. Where would that, have, where would that idea have come from? They have just thrown him into the pit. They are, uh, they are willing for him to, to die in agony in the pit. And yet this brilliant idea enters the mind of Judah when he sees these guys. Hey, maybe he was the profiteer of the group. (laughs) He was the guy that was more concerned with money. I don't know what the case might be. And yet you see God superintending in details that would not otherwise have been the case. He says, hey, let's sell them. I would have thought that they would be hiding their treachery. (laughs) They have just decided to kill their brother. And rather than kill him outright, they've said, let's throw him into a pit. Now, if you're on the scene of a crime that you've just committed and all of a sudden there's a bunch of strangers show up, what's your first thing that you're likely to do? 
Find a way to cover it up. Find a way so they don't find out what's going on, so that nobody knows that you're just... And yet God superintends that he has this idea. And, and rather than that guilt, which obviously they, they were fairly remorseless here. It doesn't seem like they had a lot of guilt. But God superintends through that, so they bring him up, offer to sell him. The Midianite traders pay, in verse 28, 20 pieces of silver for him, and that would have been a, a relatively good deal. It wasn't quite the price of an adult. Joseph at this time is 17. So it would have been a good deal for them. And it says, and they took Joseph to Egypt. Even in that detail, that it was a, a caravan of traders headed to Egypt. Why not go in the other, opposite direction? Why? Because God was superintending in the details that they would not have been able to see. God is most certainly in the details, arranging and orchestrating for his purpose. How do you take a 17-year-old nobody from Canaan up to second in command of the superpower of the day in Egypt? You don't. You wouldn't. It's impossible, but God. But God has a plan, and his will will be accomplished. He will take who he chooses and will use as he chooses to accomplish his purpose regardless of how high the odds may be stacked against it. I would think the odds would be significantly stacked against Joseph ever being ahead of second in command of of Egypt. I don't know what the percentage odds would be, but it wouldn't be something you would gamble on. And yet where God has a plan, it will be accomplished and it will supersede our plan. I don't think Joseph, at this point, probably had the slightest idea of how God was going to take these details and use them for his glory and for Joseph's good. We look at this as a really nice story, and we see, oh, this is great. Look at how God... It's because we can look back on it, and we know the beginning from the end. Joseph didn't have an idea. All he knew was that somehow he had these dreams where his brother, his mother, and his father bowed down before him and served him. That was all that he had as far as an indication of what was coming in the future. And in the meanwhile, what does he get? Brothers who despise him to the point that not only are they willing to kill him, but some of them think it's all right to throw him into a pit and let him starve to death. And then the actual circumstance of being thrown into a pit. And then the actual circumstance of being pulled out of that pit and finding out your brothers are selling you into slavery. And he, he doesn't know the end yet. And so it doesn't matter, I guess, in a sense, whether we know the end or not, but to be able to look in each of those scenarios, each of those situations and circumstances and say, God is still in control. He is still the God of the details. God is the God who allowed and caused, if you want to look at it that way, Joseph to be sold as a slave. Where where is the justice in that? And where are, are all the... Believers, all the faithful screaming, we seek justice. We want justice. This is not right. Slavery is not right. Don't misquote me on that. And yet God caused Joseph to be thrown into a pit. God caused Joseph to be sold. God caused, even if you look back on the hatred that his brothers had, they weren't right in it. They were still responsible for it. And yet God caused their hatred. He stirred them up in that hatred. That's why he gave Joseph the dreams. That's why Joseph presented it, yet without sin, as far as we know. 
because God was taking and was going to use each of these situations, each scenario, each detail to accomplish something incredible. To the salvation, Jacob, his father, and Joseph's brothers. God was going to save them through Joseph. God's plan always supersedes man's plan, regardless of the detail that you're in right now and whether you can see the beginning from the end of it. He calls us, he appoints us to his will, wherever we are and however that looks. So be busy fulfilling his will. Be busy being faithful to God, wherever and to whatever he has called you. Do not be surprised when opposition rears its ugly head. It is to be expected. But realize that God is using it. Even if others intend it for evil, God is using it for his glory and for our good. He is in the details. He is never out of control. He is sovereignly orchestrating everything for our good and for his glory. With Joseph, it took the hatred of his brothers, an empty pit in the wilderness, being sold into slavery. And as we will see, as we continue to look through his story, other struggles as well. It took all of these things as the path to God being glorified. This was the path to God being glorified in his life and saving his people. God's plan always supersedes mine. And God's plan always supersedes yours. Trust him. Step into your delegated responsibility. Expect opposition. And trust our God who is sovereignly in every single detail. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are in control of all We thank you that even when we feel abandoned, neglected and alone and crushed and beaten and hated, when these things seem to overwhelm us, you are weaving a masterpiece through it that we cannot understand, but we can trust. We can trust in your hand, and I pray that you would give us the courage to trust in you. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have sovereignly chosen to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ through the crucible of trials, through the most difficult things. And Lord, for those who are and continue to hurt and to suffer and to struggle and who have known pain that is unbearable, I pray they would see your hand, not in evil, but in good, accomplishing much good, and bringing you much glory. For I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.